You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Learning that the Rondo dwarf bush baby lives there and it is critically endangered. What can they teach us? Yeah, Africa's being there's being deforested faster than other places around the planet. I I thought it was Brazil because Brazil's just bulldozing the rainforest away. And, and... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Back to Africa. Oh, we're going to have some fun today. I just, I'm really excited to be talking about Bush Baby. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned this before, and we've had some requests about this species. Yes, Chris, I've been bugging you for Bush Babies, or I would love to do the, like the Slow Loris. There's tons of primates that we still need to cover many different families and genuses left untouched so today we're covering one yeah we're going to focus on the rondo dwarf bush baby or they're also called galagos mm-hmm. or so. night monkeys right right galagos or i also read nagapes right Right, right. So they're known as a bunch of different things, but we're just going to go with Bush Baby today because that's pretty well recognized. And another reason we're covering Bush Babies is because this week we have an amazing interview that both Angie and I did together because this is the Whitley Gold Award winner. This was the big one. And this is a rock star in Africa. Her name is Dr. Paula Kahumbu. It it's one of those big interviews that Angie and I do, and it was just, we had goosebumps the entire time speaking with her. It was in the middle of the night here in New Zealand. I think it was bright and early in the morning in Florida. <laughs> it was a great way to start my day, my week, my month. I mean, we're talking about the most recognizable woman in conservation in Africa. Yeah. And yeah. the whole continent. And it just, I have goosebumps now, just thinking about that interview and I'm so excited to share it with everyone. And of course, in the interview, we talk a lot about um, more megafauna, rhinos, elephants, which are her baby, how she got started and um, helping with the poaching crisis there. But she mentions bush babies and some of her stories. And so I said, Chris, I think Dr. Paula would, will prove if we help get people excited about some of the lesser known uh, species of primates in Africa. Right, right. Yeah, she's, she's, she's amazing. She's the CEO of the Kenyan-based NGO Wildlife Direct. She is, was pivotal in helping end the ivory trade in Kenya or keep combating the ivory trade. She's, you know, made documentaries by Africans for Africans. Her 
wildlife show in Kenya is the number one show in the country watched by millions of Africans. Amazing interview. She's an inspiration again. All these Whitley Award winners are. And so we're really excited to bring this one to you this week. So check check that out later in the week. Yes, this one's definitely dedicated to her and all of her work and all of the education she does. But of course, the Bush Baby is a great choice to talk about because they are so cute. <laughs> very, very cute. Very cute. And, and uh, this was fun for me preparing because when I was in South Africa and Kruger National Park, Back in 2019, we did a night drive and I saw a bush baby. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so even, you know, when the driver who does this for a living is like, oh my goodness, this is really special and cool. Everyone look, but we'll talk about it more in the podcast. Bush babies live in trees and they move pretty quickly. And so it was, I mean, there was no way to snap a photo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I have to relive it in my mind and it was, it was a cool experience. And so. But as we'll also discuss, there's several species of bush mm-hmm. babies. Uh, and so that's where I had to go back to the to the drawing board to say, okay. So I had to, to get out my South African wildlife uh, book and come to find out, I think it was a lesser bush baby that I saw uh, because there's also a thick-tailed bush baby in that region of South Africa. But I don't remember the tail being that thick. But once again, it was at nighttime. And so... The cute little creature moved so fast, I didn't get to spend much time identifying it. And that was when you were in Kruger, right? When you did the night mm-hmm. walk, and then you had the lions walking right by you late at night. It's just like, yes, you know, yeah, open those night- air bus, right? Yes, those nighttime drives, uh, you see a lot, and the lion experience was incredible. I think we uh, shared some footage of that. Uh, if not, we'll have to do that again. But also the Cape Buffalo, we probably had a, uh, we had to stop for about a herd of 80 or so Cape Buffalo cross the road. And that was, uh, that was, I know enough about Cape Buffalo to know that I didn't, I I was staying towards the back of the bus, not necessarily getting close up for that photo because, uh, yes, they, we didn't mess with them, but I, I didn't want them to mess with us. That's for sure. Yeah, that, that's an amazing trip. Amazing trip. Still didn't see the leopard, though. Sorry, Ange. We'll get it one of these days. I've got to go back. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah. yeah, the list is growing. The list is growing. So just really quick before we get going, you know, thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Again, you know, like I'll say every week, a cup of coffee a month supports us in our mission. Angie and I are going to make a really big push later in this year as schools ramp up try to advertise more and push this education out to the younger generation. So you are helping in those efforts. I just got to get from the bottom of our heart. Thank you to all those that support us each month. Thank you to our listeners. And you can also just share our episodes, continue to help us grow. We're adding listeners every week. So thank you so much as we continue to fight for these animals and tell these stories. Yeah, and I want to give a huge shout out to Zookeeper Randy, who gave us a wonderful review on iTunes, which really helps us get more circulation and uh, can get this podcast to more people uh, internationally. So thank you, Zookeeper Randy. And of course, I love the name Randy because that was my late father's name. So I really appreciate it. And if you're listening now and you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes, we would really appreciate it. And you can also uh, like us on Facebook or uh, Instagram. And then we also have an all creatures group on Facebook that's a little bit more intimate. 
sharing articles and having some good discussions. And lastly, Chris and I are hosting the third annual Plastic Free July. Uh, it's a challenge that uh, is held once a year in July for 31 days, where we try to learn more about reducing our plastic consumption. It's not like you have to go completely plastic free. Eh? Um, boy, that's almost darn near impossible. But there's a lot of challenges where you can earn points by just picking up garbage or saying no to plastic bags or no to straws or bringing your own cutlery uh, for to-go food, things like that. So it's really fun. It's a great community. And for uh, people that are really interactive and uh, get involved, we always provide prizes um, at the end of the month. So you can find the links to that on our website, allcreaturespod.com. And then also on our social media platforms, such as Facebook, there's a link on there. And then uh, we'll hopefully be providing some on Instagram as well. Or right now, you could just easily go to plasticfree.ecochallenge.org and join. And then you search for the team. And our team, of course, is All Creatures Podcast. Yeah, just check the the show notes. We'll have those links in there. And also, you know, the month of July, we dedicate to the ocean aquatic creatures. So we have a really exciting lineup coming for you in the next few weeks, highlighting our oceans and everything that's going on there. So, so look for that. Now, bush babies are adorable. I go back to the movie, I think it's Dinosaur, which... Or I, or you know, the movie Madagascar, you know, with the lemurs, because these do have a lot of similarities to to lemurs and what we see, right? Yeah, Chris, I just can't decide if I am more in love with their large saucer eyes, uh, these big round eyes, uh, almost like frisbees or saucers, or their large ears, which we'll talk a lot about when we get to physiology, uh, are just their bat-like and round and just adorable, but they also have a long tail that depending on which species it is, is sometimes fluffy, uh, and just super cute. They have little noses. I mean, they have a primate like face or like Chris said, like a lemur in the face. Uh, but they're really dainty as far as their nose and then their fingers to grip onto the trees. We'll talk a lot about, are just uh, are just really unique, and then of course the the different species are going to have some subtleties in their coat color, whether if it's more of a brown or a gray with maybe a white underbelly. Some have a little bit of markings on their face, like a little stripe down their face. A very subtle, very very subtle though, but not as flashy in color or in different patterns of their coat as maybe when you think of a lemur or even some of the other old world primates. And in fact, experts say that there are several species, there's about 19 to 20, depending on who you ask, of bush babies in Africa. Uh, The subtleties are hard for, like at first I was feeling bad that I couldn't figure out if it was like a lesser Mm -hmm. bush baby Mm -hmm. or the thick-tailed bush baby. But then I learned that that's it's hard. Like it's hard. They're very hard to identify because they're they. A lot of them look similar, uh, but they have uh, very distinct genetic traits um, and and vocalizations, which we'll talk about, which help separate them among different species. 
Well, it was at night too, so come on. Yeah, <laughs> and they move fast. Like, they do move fast. Not. Yes, but I was like, still, you know, I like, I'm, I'm that I'm that dork that wants to like check it off the box because, right. of course, I have this like box where I put a little check in and where I saw it, what time of day, That's how many awesome. there were. Anyways, yeah. uh, but as Chris mentioned earlier in the podcast, we're going to talk a lot today about the Rondo dwarf bush baby. And out of all the different species of bush babies, we wanted to focus on the uh, Rondo dwarf bush baby because it's critically endangered. And we really want to save this guy because I'm looking at a picture right now and Chris will put some pictures on our show notes. And what separates the Rondo dwarf bush baby from several of the other species is its size. And we'll talk about that here in a second. It is small for bush. Bush babies are small in general, uh, but dwarfs, of course, are even smaller. But the Rondo has this beautiful uh, brown, almost auburn, red, it looks like very, very thick tail. And I think that's one of its unique features compared to some of the other bush babies. And then it's colored as brown in color with a little bit of a cream or white underbelly, but, and it, it has a cute little blaze or a stripe in between its eyes that run down its nose as well. So it, they're just really cute. Y'all have to pull up our show notes or, or look online. Any, any, there is no such thing as a not cute bush baby. They are. No. No, they're all adorable. stinking really cute. And for the most part, they're all pretty small. <laughs> I did catch you say y'all in there. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, <laughs> edit that out. No, no way, Florida. No. So what, what I said earlier, dinosaurs, it's the animated movie and they the early primates. And then in Madagascar, obviously, you have the, uh, you know, the different lemur species. But, you know, they are they are very ancient looking primates, relatives. There are ancient mm-hmm. relatives. You know, we are related to them. Well, this is always fun when preparing any primate podcast that we've done. We've done a handful of them now is just when I'm getting the behavior section of just, I'm like looking in the mirror. I like, we do that too. Or I mean, just, yeah. it's just so fascinating. Well, one of our tabs is primates because we've covered so many of them. So we've done the golden snub nose monkey, the mandrels, the bonobos, Snow monkeys. Bonobos. Bonobos. Yeah, I always mess that up. Y'all. Red rough lemurs. (laughs) Touche. Good for you. (laughs) The golden lion tamarind. Gibbons. Mountain gorillas. Orangutans. And the cat ball langer. So now we're adding another with bush babies. And it's specifically the smallest bush baby, Mm. the dwarf rondo. And they four to five inches long or 12 to 14 centimeters their body and then they weigh less than 100 grams i mean they're tiny yeah like the size of a large mouse right yeah yeah there's our relative those were the earliest primates is if if really what you want to look at is the bush babies and the lemurs that's what the the early ones looked like now bush babies are found in sub-sahara africa so everything south of the sahara desert you're gonna have bush babies so where these ones are, the Rondo Dwarfs, specifically in Tanzania, but like Angie just said, Kruger, you know, down in South Africa, bush babies, and then all the way over to Gabon, Cameroon, you know, West Africa, bush babies are there too. The Rondo Dwarf is only found in about 20 square miles or 50 square kilometers of coastal Tanzania. And they're in the mountains, so they love these evergreen forests. And, you know, even when we talk about conservation, 
there are no specific population numbers because they are so rare, mm -hmm. but there are two clusters of them about 400 kilometers apart. So they're severely, severely fragmented. Well, Chris, when I pulled up the distribution map to look to really zoom in on where in Tanzania, because I've been blessed enough to go to Tanzania, uh, but I have not been to this region where they're found. I was spending time collecting data on wildebeest populations through Earthwatch in uh, Tarangiri National Park. So I was off the coast, uh, but I'm very attracted to the coast of uh, Tanzania. I would love to get back and go to Zanzibar and just uh, really do some more exploring there. And then now learning that the Rondo dwarf bush baby lives there and it is critically endangered, I, it, would, it would definitely be a place worth checking out. I, their distribution map, it's like a little dot, you know, when you look at it, it it's, you know, and, and they're just, yeah, they're yeah, in big yeah, trouble. It just a, yeah, big it trouble. was just like yeah. two dots, like you said, about yeah. 400 kilometers apart. And so, yeah, I mean, they definitely are worth us dedicating this podcast to them and for people to understand more about why we should care about bush babies and the Rondo dwarf in particular. Right. I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they're going to find out they're insectivores. So again, very important in controlling insect populations. Mm -hmm. They do some fruit eating, seed dispersal, you know, the prey for predators. All the normal things small primates and smaller mammals do. Yeah. And I think, I'm sure Chris will talk a lot about it when we get to evolution, but uh, the bush babies, they are these primitive primates, right? And so for researchers, they are helping us understand this gap between non-primates, so animals that are not in the primate family, and then, of course, the higher primates such as us or chimpanzees. So a really, really important link to help understand um, where we came from and maybe where we're going. And what's also really interesting is that the Rondo bush baby is this dwarf bush baby. And so they've been recognized as a really unique species due to their phylogeny uh, by the edge of existence, which I'll talk about more at the end of the podcast. But this is great conservation group out of the Zoological Society of London, which we've highlighted on this podcast several times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because they focus on animals that have these really distinct lineages and are their own, typically like their own unique branch on the phylo phylogenetic tree. So if we lose them, we're losing this really unique species that there, there are no subspecies for or anything like that. And so the uh, Rondo dwarf bush baby falls into that category. And with that being said, the Rondo dwarf bush baby is listed as one of the IUCN's 25 most endangered primates. Yeah, they're they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble. And it's important to remember, you know, with these animals suffering, there's other species in that that part of the Tanzania that are suffering. You know, it's sure. Right. They bring a they bring a, a spotlight to the area and said, Hey, these guys are critically endangered, but all the other species of birds and, and insects and lizard, you know, reptiles and amphibians and everything else in that area is also suffering. And the really the 
big thing that is affecting these dwarf bush babies is deforestation. And it's interesting because it's something that Paul, Dr. Paula talks about in our interview is now that, you know, they, they've, they've fought the ivory trade. It, it looks like things are getting better for elephants, at least in that part of the world. I know the forest elephants are the ones that are being heavily poached now. That's a big concern. But as far as the Savannah elephants, yes, they're still being poached. But, you know, Kenya has stepped up their game as well as a lot of other countries in Africa to protect them. So her focus, she talks a lot about, is now they're seeing a lot of development in Africa and its impact on the natural world. Now, where the Rondo dwarf bush baby is, is in Tanzania's Rondo Plateau. And there is a lot of fragmentation of these forests, these coastal forests, because of logging, charcoal manufacturing. You know, we talked about this in Madagascar. That's why they're losing their forests quickly. And then some agriculture expansion. So I, I wanted to focus a little bit today and explain what's going on in Africa with deforestation, because we've, we do focus a lot on We've talked a lot about the Amazon, which is still being cut down in alarming rates, and specifically Brazil. And we've talked a little bit in Indonesia with the destruction, or, or in Southeast Asia, the destruction of all the rainforests for, for palm, palm oil. Yeah, mm -hmm. palm plantations. So in Africa, it's really interesting. I didn't realize this, but according to the UN, these old growth forests in Africa are being cut down at a rate more than uh, tw more than twice the world's deforestation average. Wow, I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, Africa's being they're, they're being deforested faster than other places around the planet. I I thought it was Brazil because Brazil's just bulldozing the rainforest away, and, and within a few years, you know, within a decade, it's going to be irreversible the damage. It's going to all, all the you know the Amazon rainforest is is really threatened with extinction, becoming a savanna. We're getting close to that tipping point. We've talked about that. Well, in Africa, they're losing about 4 million hectares per year. So I did the math, did a little deep dive. So that's equal to about 15,444 square miles per year. So to put that in geographical terms, that's about the size of Maryland, which is a state in the United States, lost per year, or the size of Switzerland, wow. roughly. Okay. Lost it, that puts it in perspective, but not a good one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and according to the UN, in Africa, they've lost more than 10% of their total forest cover in, in 15 years. So it's just really, really harrowing. You know, the forests there are so critical to their watersheds, it, you know, local weather. We've talked about that, how rainforests and these forests have feedback mechanisms releasing moisture that goes up into the atmosphere, which affects weather patterns, rainfall, important against soil erosion, soil fertility. So it's really alarming, right? It's really alarming that the forests there are being cut down. Now, getting into this and getting into the whys, it is so complex compared to, say, Brazil. Okay, we know in Brazil, 
and I'm focusing on Brazil. It's going on in Peru too and other South American countries, but I am picking on Brazil because this is where in the last few years, handful of years, it's become a real big problem. That is primarily agriculture. They're clearing away land to, to grow cattle feed and graze cattle. That is the major reason they're cutting down the Amazon rainforest, right? And I even read, it's interesting because again, vote with our dollar. I, I even saw a couple of news articles and I, I didn't really jump into it, but that, you know, in the UK, at least back in Pip's, Pip's neck of the woods and probably part other parts of Europe where they're, they're looking to start banning imports of Brazil products because of this. Wow. People, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But so with your dollar. Is, mm-hmm. Yeah. This is why it's important, you know, to, to say like Brazilian beef for sure, you know, they don't want, and, you know, they're trying to protect the Amazon rainforest. Well, in Africa, that a little of it is that, but it's more than that. It, there's so many complex issues. One of the things is land use rights because the African culture is more community based, you know, Westerners or other organizations have gone in and say, hey, let's propose individual land use and ownership. You can buy the land, use it as you want, stewards of the land, blah, blah, blah. Well, that doesn't work there because Mm -hmm. a lot of things are community, community owned. Other parts of Africa, certain countries have nationalized the land, said, okay, this is now owned by the government. Well, they're not protecting it. They're, you know, they're partitioning it off to their wealthy friends who then go and exploit it. Right. So that, you know, so there's that issue. Subsistence farmers in Africa, you know, they don't understand that keeping trees on the land helps against soil erosion or help improve soil fertility. So how do you educate them? You know, how do you get out there and say, hey, you need these trees. You, you know, you can farm around it or or maintain some of them. Wood for fuel. We talked about this in Madagascar. Charcoal. Because, you know, a lot of Africa's rural and you have these rural communities. They need fuel. It, it, it's part of being a human being. You need fuel for fires and things like that. So one of the solutions they're, they're trying to implement is giving them more wood efficient burning stoves but again they know how to you know they need to get them they know need to know how to use them right things like that so that's that's complicated and then just the obvious answer is africa's booming in population you know with the the advances in medicine getting to the african people you know more things to keep them healthy they're, you know, the world population is growing at 1.7% per year. In Africa, it's 3% per year. So people are living longer. Child mortality is way down, which is a great thing. That is a very good thing. But the landscape can't support all of, the, you know, at, in the direction the population is going. You know, again, the, the population is going to get too big in Africa where they they can't grow enough food. There's not enough land to feed and house everybody. So one of the things they're talking about is, this is interesting statistic, Angie. In sub-Sahara Africa, the average woman has six children in her lifetime. You're halfway wow. there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You're 
way there. <laughs> and so. this, the buck stops here, my friend. <laughs> We gotta send. We gotta send John to the veterinarian to get fixed. Oh my goodness! I got very lucky with number three being as peaceful and happy and Uh, easy, easy breezy lemon squeezy. But yeah, six. That's it. Six. That's no thank you. Not not for not for me personally. Yeah. No. Okay. So one of the things we know, and, and especially in Africa, as women's educational level rises, fertility rates drop because those women enter the workforce. They don't want to have as many children. So there's a push to get more women educated in there. I know Melinda Gates was big on pushing some of this, which was great. I remember watching mm-hmm. a, a documentary on her efforts in Africa so, you know, if we can educate more women in Africa, that will help, you know, decrease population, which again will decrease the amount of pressure on the land. Now, why we should worry about deforestation? And, and sorry, this is this is like the gist of And sorry, just to tie this in a little bit more. Climate change. Right now in the US, you guys are going through horrific drought and heat wave. You know, well, just today depending on where you I'm, live or a lot of rain. Uh, in Michigan, the, the crops are flooding because there's too much rain. Yeah. Yeah. Weather mm-hmm. patterns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I saw it was 128 in Death Valley the other day. Oh, yeah. So, the Pacific Northwest experienced yeah. record high temperatures. Yeah. I saw that it was hotter in Finland than it was in Spain the other day. You know, we talk about the poles being hotter than than around the uh, equator. So things like fossil fuels, like Australia, you know, I'm tying this all into the globe, still promoting coal and coal produces 30% more carbon than fossil fuels. Even here in green New Zealand, talking to, I was at a, one of my kids' soccer games, talking to a couple of the parents, I didn't know this, but coal use in New Zealand's gone up in the last few years. Well, you know, we're not off the stuff here in the states either. So yeah, yeah. And you I know, mean, New I Zealand- live in I live in Florida, the sunshine state, and there <laughs> there's not enough solar. I mean, there's not enough solar panels here. It's it's a joke. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So I was surprised with New Zealand, and ten percent of our energy is produced by coal, and it, and it's gone up because of less natural gas. And New Zealand is pushing green energy that, you know, they want to get off coal, but this is why losing trees is, is a big problem with climate change. Mm -hmm. Each year we cut down about 15 billion trees. That's with a B. B billion. And we replant only 5 billion. So we have a net loss of 10 billion billion say trees that math here. doesn't work out that's that's a lot yeah. it's a high loss yeah at the current rate we'll lose all of our trees in 300 years if we just keep cutting them down like this well chris that's why in the past couple of years for john's birthday and father day father's day i always get trees and so oh i've gotten him um a key lime tree an orange tree a lemon tree a, I just got him a banana tree this year. Mm-hmm. Last year we got him a. Oh, his favorite is a eastern redbud. 
That's awesome. So yeah, I just it's just all I mean, I'm I can't make up for the ten billion loss. No, no. Well <laughs> okay. Well you're doing your part. So here it is. Here's here's some of the statistics on carbon sequestration. So it it takes six trees to offset one ton of carbon per year. So you're getting there. You're getting there for John. Now again oh, I gotta do more. That's good. I, I like a good challenge. <laughs> okay. Well I you know, I did. I went and did the carbon foot calculator again. I'll link it in the show notes. We've we've done oh, this before. Oh yes, please do. I need to yeah. do that. So I did a rough estimate for an average American, right? For me, and I, I came out about ten tons of carbon per year, and that includes the boys, you know, staying with me too, and you know, some of the the household stuff that we do. Because I've done it before, and I think I came out to about seven. Now, I didn't include international travel, which was kind of big for me last year. It was kind of just, you know, getting to New Zealand and, and just dealing with the COVID stuff. So that was an additional three tons of carbon that I did myself. All right. So if I just do my average yearly, I need 60 trees per year to offset my own carbon impact on the world. So I need to plant more trees than I have in the last couple of years. I think I've planted five. So I need to get get moving. It it's hard. You know, it's hard to to offset our impact on the planet. But, you know, if we do become good stewards of the environment, we can. And that's my tip of the week. Do the carbon foot impact and see how you can decrease your own impact. Now to bring this all back. To bring it back to the Rondo Dwarf, and again, Dr. Paula's interview, back to Tanzania, this is where the deforestation is taking place that is having direct effects on this primate. There is a group, the Tanzania Forest Conservation Group, that is working to preserve these coastal forests. Just last year, Angie, they were able to protect or safeguard almost 50,000 acres of coastal forests in eastern Tanzania. So they're also, you know, developing and protecting this wildlife corridor between these two reserves that elephants use, lions, leopards, all the, all the, the big species there. It won't particularly, I mean, this area is where the Rondo dwarf bush baby lives. So Mm -hmm. it will help them, but obviously they're not going to be able to put a corridor between the two populations Yes, but, it's too far. Mm-hmm. Right. But at least there's groups there working to protect these forests. And again, this is what Dr. Paula is working on now. This is what she's pushing. Again, the most recognized woman in conservation, more than Jane Goodall, you know, which was like, wow, uh, face in, in Africa, you know, preserving their landscape. So again, look for that interview, but that kind of gives you an insight into what's going on there. Well, Chris, make sure and link uh, those places, those nonprofits in Tanzania in the show notes too. So we can learn more about what they're doing and help support them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know that went a little long, but again, that kind of ties into Dr. Paula's interview too. So to give you a snapshot of some of the pressures going on in. Well, and Chris is pretty smart. He knew because we're talking about Bush babies that he could, he, he would could keep your attention because everybody, everybody wants to get to the cute stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's a conservation. It's what's you know, going on in the world. I, I, yeah. I'm teasing. It is really, yeah. really important. And it's also very relevant because People, at least here in the States, from north, south, east, and west, all parts are experiencing 
really abnormal weather hardships. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are. And and it's our, it's our summertime. And so it's supposed to be like this really nice weather, but it's like either crazy monsoon or rain or like, or hot, 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 like unbelievable, uncomfortable, not enjoyable summer heat. So yeah. 115 degrees in Seattle. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Are you kidding me? And here I am. I, I'm getting hit with an Antarctic blast. You know, I, I've been texting Chantel over in Australia. She's in Melbourne. I mean, she's getting blasted too. It, it's freezing down here. And then I read the news back home and it's like, it's it's drought. It's heat waves here. Seattle? Like Seattle. Seattle. I remember when I was up there way back when, when I was in the army and it was like 90 and I thought I was going to die. Right. I can't imagine 115. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, those poor moose. I go back to the moose episode. Remember they wolverines? They yeah, they've been sighted in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I mean the moose can't survive above eighty-five. Remember eighty-five degrees Fahrenheit, and and moose it gets above that if they can't cool down, they stop dropping dead. It's just yeah, we got we we've all got to come together. This is why. We, okay, I'm going to plant more trees. And right, Angie, I'm going to plant more trees. I need 60 at least or five <laughs> or, or what? Five billion. <laughs> I'll work on it. I'll work yeah. on it. All right. So let's jump into evolution. Get back to the bush babies specifically. The order is primates. And within our order, there's over 600 species or subspecies and increasing. You know, as we talk about in bush babies, you sent me that article where they just discovered a, another species or mm-hmm. yeah, with genetics and everything. So very interesting. Again, in our primates, you know, you have the humans, then the great or the great apes, because we're part of that too. Then the lesser apes, which is our gibbons. Then our monkeys, which is our old world and new world monkeys. And then our prosimians. So our lemurs, our tarsiers, and then our lorises. And then that is where our bush babies fall into. So they are in the sub order. So I usually don't cover all the subs because they're in classification, but this one was inter- interesting. So they're in the, the sub order Strepsirhini, which is those lemurs, lorises, and bush babies, where all the other primates are in Haplorhini. So the monkeys, great and lesser apes. Now, the bush baby's family is Galagidae, and like Angie said, there's about 19 to 20 species. It's changing because of genetics. There's six or now seven genera, because again, you sent me that new article that came out, and they discovered a new species, which they are proposing as its own genus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, bush babies, very complicated uh, classification. The Rondo dwarf bush baby is in the genus Paragalago, which has about six species, and then their species name is Paragalago rhododensis. So, you know, like Angie already said, she had the the thick-tailed bush baby, the lesser bush baby. There's the Zanzibar bush baby, which we were talking about. We want to go to the brown grater, the Prince Demidorf. There's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of them. Senegal. Like I said, they're over in the western side. So, you know, big, big family over there. Yeah. Well, what I thought was really interesting from that article is that originally the 
dwarf version of the bush babies, like the Rondo, uh, they were thought to be like more primitive, like earlier, mm-hmm. earlier mm-hmm. on, because it's just a common theory in evolution that as species evolve, they get bigger. And so they started off as dwarf bush babies and they got slightly larger, uh, that they were different from the slightly larger species. But of course, with genetics now and then also using uh their vocalizations so between dna and Mm -hmm. and all these calls that they make they're actually finding out it's flipping this theory on its back basically because they're finding out that uh the dwarf bush babies this genus both west and east africa haven't shared a common ancestor with the larger bush babies for over 20 million years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're, even though they don't even look that different, they are much different. And that's why they named this new genus, the Paralago, Para, you must, you said it much better. Paragalago. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, just really fascinating. Right. And 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 when we talk about why care, it's well, that's what the edge of existence is doing. It's like, well, this is really, really interesting that uh, they haven't, even though they are somewhat similar, they're still very, very different or have been separate for a really long, I mean, 20 million years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, okay, yeah, there's allegedly 19, 20 species of bush babies, but it's 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 so much more complex than that. Uh, and so, no, we don't want the Rondo Dwarf to go away because it, it represents this really unique lineage. It does. It does. It does. It's so, it, it was funny. I, Pip asked me the other day, she's like, if you could go back to school, what would you, what would you study? Mm. And I said, you know, maybe ocean conservation, but then I think I get too seasick. So I decided, I told her, you know what? I would love to go back and like study the evolution aspect of animals. Like it just fascinates me you know, thinking about these modifications, how all these species survived. We always talk about the ancient animals, how crazy some of them were, you know, the, the next cat episode we do, I'm going to go into saber tooth cats because that one fascinates me. Why did they evolve these dagger like teeth? What advantage yeah. did it give them? So it just, yeah, it's science. That's why we're so geeks. It just, I know. Fun. Well, it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that. I was just talking to my friend Taylor the other day, or maybe maybe it was Nani. I can't remember. One of my fellow science dork buddies. Uh, but I was saying that I would go back and actually do like neurobiology, like the yeah like that hardcore physiology yeah. to, of course, in relation to help me understand behavior better. Uh, but really just the pathways and mm-hmm. what's wired where and uh well, we can always go back and get another phd i'll do evolutionary <laughs> biology I've, and neurobiology. I've <laughs> joked about that with john and it's like it, it was weird it's like he didn't get the joke because he wasn't laughing like he he had a very very serious uh face. yes yes so i uh i changed the subject pretty quickly i would laugh and look at you and say no <laughs> not with three three boys no <laughs> Thank oh you. no no maybe maybe later in life uh perhaps but yes uh but I mean, but, I, but, but now because i understand a lot all the physiology now i i almost right. can learn i do learn a lot on my own when i'm writing some of these research papers and on behavior and stuff so i mean because we've been in animal physiology and behavior for 20 years or i'm sorry you know a, a while it, it seems like oh God. yeah we're nerds we like to learn that's why we do the podcast we learn every week and it just 
you know, all it's these never questions. enough. It's never no, enough. It's not. So talking about evolution, Angie primate, this is a rabbit hole I went down and I know yeah, I don't want this to be a super long podcast, but I, I, I started to dork out because they, they did find this week, it came out in the news, Dragon Man. So I'm going to get there. I read that. <laughs> I, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. Homo longi is, is the species name. Again, primate evolution, 55 million years ago. Some are pushing it back 65 million years ago now. They look like prosimians. They look like bush babies. Those were the first primates early, early, early days. The first true primates found North America, Europe, Asia, Africa around 35 to 40 million years ago, which is interesting because we we don't have a, a lot. We're learning more like this dragon man they just uh, released in the news. Specifically, bush babies, the oldest known relative is about 38 million years ago, and they found them in Egypt. So that's about when you know we can go back and look. So human evolution, this is, this is always fun. It, and, you know, I always add to this story when we cover a primate. So dragon man, Homo longi, is now changing the way we think of human evolution. And they believe this species, right? It's, it's our fellow species of, of Homo, which is our genus, could replace Neanderthals as our closest, closest relatives. And it's because of the skull and the skull structure, they're like, okay, this is the closest thing we have to Homo sapiens. It's no longer Neanderthals. Even though Homo sapiens and Neanderthals live side by side, Homo longi is now considered our sister species. Now, why they call him Dragon Man, and that is because where they found it in China, in Longzheng, if I'm saying that right, the Dragon River. Right oh, near okay. the Dragon River. So that's where the name came from. Because I thought Dragon Man. I'm like, ooh, this sounds cool. Like, Yeah, some, does he have scales? Yeah. Does he <laughs> no, fire? Like some crazy, no, it's where they found it. Gotcha. Uh, so, so if we go back, human evolution, our earliest relative, Sehelanthropus, is when we started to walk more upright. You know, less ape-like and more upright. And that was about six million years ago. So we didn't show up till about five million years after that. Now, the the because this is always what gets me, you know, you always think of who were the first humans. Again, this is why I want to study evolutionary biology. How did they just arise? You know, Adam and Eve story, like all of that stuff. Like, where did people go from one species to the next. Well, obviously it, it's not a single time or place. They think that a bunch of our ancestors before we really became homo sapiens, it was evolving at different parts of Africa. And there was some genetic changing, you know, breeding, trading of tools, some of these things that were being interspersed in these populations that gave rise finally to Homo sapiens, which emerged. Now, here's here's the time span when we first emerged, because they're starting to narrow this down more and more and more. Anywhere from 750,000 years ago to 550,000 years ago, 
the way they've, I, I totally went down this deep dive, so I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. <laughs> but the way they did this is <laughs> genetics. They use the molecular clock. They, they, they have got a partial genome from bones that are about 430,000 years old. They've compared it to the genome of older species. And then they do this molecular genome clock, like when, how often genes change on their own, blah, 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 blah. That's where they came up with this huge time frame. Okay. Now we know we emerged from Africa, Homo sapiens, where Homo Neanderthals, Neanderthalensis, Homo Neanderthalensis. And then there's this other one, which I didn't even go down this rabbit hole yet, but the, the Denisovans, which is a whole nother discussion for another day, a branch of the human tree that I think I've read quickly. They went, they think they went fully extinct like 20,000 years ago, but they were like, we don't even have like, it's, uh, I don't even know. I haven't gone down there. Anyways, the oldest known human fossil dates back about 300,000 years ago. They found in Morocco, but they know there was humans down in Africa, things like that. So dragon man, Homo longi is our cousin species. So uh, that's the take-home message. And the other take-home message is humans have been around for roughly 600,000 years, Homo sapiens. And we're still evolving. Like we're evolving now. We're, we're smarter in some ways, dumber in others. We you know, are healthier. We're living longer. Genetics are going to change the trajectory of our species in the next thousand years. By far, imagine where we're going to be. Humanity is going to be in a thousand years if we can survive climate change and all these other things that are coming. But through modern medicine, modern genetics, like, Homo sapiens will be different in a thousand years. No problem. I I can bet on that. I won't be here, obviously, but it's going to be like Homo sapiens sapien or something superior to than what we are today. Anyways, always fun to talk about. Yeah, Chris. No, I'm so glad you brought up Dragon Man. I, I, I wasn't. I of course I only sped read the article, so I knew I knew you would uh, give me a. I don't know if we'd call it cliff notes, but uh, <laughs> sorry, I, <laughs> no, I, I love it. Out on this all day, all day. Now switching gears to the Bush baby Angie and and some of their facts and physiology. I mean, three to four years in the wild for Bush babies in general lifespan not very long but they can live up to 10 years under human care so you know not long lives uh, for primates but they have some fascinating physiology oh yeah chris where do we start their ears their fingers their hind legs or i mean uh, they've got it all uh, their eyes right uh just they have a number of adaptations that basically enable them to move fast and accurately uh, through the trees at nighttime, which and catch insects to eat. So we're talking strong hands and feet that can easily grasp the trees as they move through them. Um, elongated hind limbs and their uh, front arms or their forelimbs are shorter. These huge eyes uh, that can help them see under low light uh, and catch insects in the air uh, that are flying around. Well, Chris, what I definitely didn't know about bush babies and found fascinating was their ears. So as I described them, they are these large, almost some, 
call them bat-like ears. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. They almost look like radar dishes, right? Like that are sitting on their, on their heads to, to help them. And of course their hearing is great um, because it helps them zone in on their prey, whether, especially when they're eating insects. And what's super fascinating is that these ears have these four transverse ridges that can be independently or together bent backwards and wrinkled downward uh, towards the base from the tips. And they basically can collapse their ears when they need to, when they're like bouncing through the bushes. So these delicate ear flaps lay back to help protect uh, their ears and of course themselves as they move around. And then for anybody who's um, seen them up close and personal under human care. So that's care, a primate. Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's a primate that has like control like like almost dogs and horses and that's awesome. Right, right. Yeah, and that's yeah, what we yeah. talk about. We talk about them, yeah. you know, this link because I think there are people here and there that can kind of move an ear a little bit. Maybe it's just a trick, an illusion type deal. But yeah, I mean, that's when we talk about the link between like non-primates and primates. So they're going to have traits of, like you said, of of non, non-primate. And then moving on to their fingers, they have nails on most of their fingers like we do, um, except for the on their hind feet, the second toe doesn't have a nail. Instead, it has a grooming claw. And when we get to behavior, we talk a lot about their, their social aspects, which, of course, grooming is a big part of primate uh, behavior in general. Uh, but they also, the ends of their fingers and toes um, are flattened. And they almost, it's almost like a disc of flat skin. And what that does is that helps them grip when they're moving through trees and slippery surfaces. Well, then I was reading about their eyes. So this is something unique about them too. Again, more primitive primate. Their eyes don't move in in their eye sockets, but they're huge and they bulge. So they can see 250 degrees, which is 50 more than us. And they can rotate their head like almost 180 degrees like an owl. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really unique for them. And then really good night vision. But one of the things you talked about earlier, Angie, is when you you did see that bush baby in Africa, how quickly they move, right? How they can jump and leap and the physiology. Yeah, I was lucky that I saw it because a lot of the people on – um, on the truck didn't see it because it was, it just it jumped out of the way. And so, yeah, I mean, and a lot of their quick movement and jumping ability is because they have really strong hind legs. And so their ankle or their tarsus bone is really long. It's like elongated. Uh, and so they can kind of hop almost like a kangaroo. And then a lot also with these hind legs, they have a lot of muscles, right? Like really, really thick um, quadriceps, if you think about it. And that's how they can leap. And when we talk about their leaping or jumping ability, uh, they can move, they can jump about as far as three to five meters in a single leap. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's like, yeah, it's like a little (laughs) miniature kangaroo, but they're leaping through the trees, right? Right. Uh, So just, just really, really incredible adaptations to help them get around in the trees and then also not be seen by tourists like myself. 
You're actually really lucky you saw them. I mean, you know, thinking about no, it. So yeah. I've been on, I've, I'm spoiled. I'm spoiled. Uh, so I've been on enough safari trucks and I have not even, not that it's been that many, but you can tell when the driver is like, oh my goodness, this is rare. Mm-hmm. That's when you, you got to pay attention because they do this day in and day out. And so the other, the, um, on a day drive, we uh, we saw the tail end of a civet and that was like, the driver was like, oh my gosh, this is You don't incredible. see them. Yeah, you don't so see them. So that and the bush baby were, um, and of course they move so quick and yeah, they're not, not like the lazy lions that lay in the middle of the road or the hyenas <laughs> that are like under the drainage pipe. Like right. you could, they don't move. I mean, if I wish I had a, a better camera because I could have taken like award-winning pictures with, because they don't move. They're, it's perfect. Right, um, right, right. So and all the elephants. I mean, we know Kruger's like, you know, tons, oh, I have wonderful footage and videos because yeah. they're usually just foraging, right? And that's why I love the megafauna, the herbivores, because they – they're somewhere in between, right? They're not super lazy like the lions, um, but they're not super quick like the, the bush babies. And so they're usually just foraging around, but moving at a, uh, usually you should be a safe enough distance away from them where you can just watch them just eat. And when, and then they, you know, they take a few steps, they eat, they take a few steps, they eat. So uh, that's more my pace. That's what you and I are right. used to, right? The ungulates. Right. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was exciting. You saw them. Now, the tooth comb, could you explain that one again? I know we've talked about something like that before. Right. So as I mentioned, their hind foot has this grooming claw, but they also have a tooth comb which is exactly pretty much what it is it's a the bottom their bottom front teeth is like a comb or it's a dental comb and this tooth comb is just another tool that the bush babies use to help groom one another um, and to create this social bond and help reinforce their social dynamics uh, between family members and also, lemurs have them, tree shoes, hyraxes, some African antelopes have them, which if you think about a bush baby and a lemur um, or a lorry or something, it's like, okay, well, they're kind of close on the phylogenetic tree, but an antelope? And so the tooth comb is a really cool example of uh, convergent evolution where it, pop- it popped up in several different lines, not related because uh, evolutionary speaking, it was important. It probably helped reinforce bonds. And if you have a stronger bond with another animal, mm-hmm. you're maybe more likely to survive or breed. Uh, so yeah, this tooth comb was really cool. Yeah. It's, it's so funny. Cause you, today's, today's, today's theme is definitely evolution. Cause I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, that's right. We covered it in lemurs and I'm like, oh, yeah, and then lemurs, you know, got on the raft of vegetation 20 million years ago or whatever it was, floated over to, to Madagascar. So obviously very closely related to bush babies. But bush babies are like the ancient hardcore survivors why the lemurs went over and had a party for millions of years <laughs> until the, <laughs> oh, until, the Fusa, ever? until the Fusa uh, showed up. And then it was sure. like, oh, party's over, you know. Mm-hmm, <laughs> but, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just so cool how oh, I love nature. I love nature. I love it. That's why we do what we do. Now, really quickly, jump behavior. I mean, we talked about nutrition. I mean, these are insectivores. They will eat some fruits and flowers. Like Angie said, you know, they're in the trees, leaping around, catching these, using their using their ears to to track insects. You know, they're really quick and agile. As far as their behaviors, what else are we learning from these bush babies? 
Just that I love them. (laughs) Uh, Well, as we pointed out already, they're nocturnal, right? Which means they sleep during the day uh, in nests. And so they'll build a nest, like it might be in a tree hollow or in vegetation. Uh, Some species, such as the Senegal bush baby, uh, has been reported to use like uh, old bird nests or um, beehives. So they'll sleep during the day in this nest that helps protect them from predators, right? And keeps them keeps them nice and camouflaged for the most part and often unseen by also people like me that are are on safari trying to see them, but they're they're hidden away in their nests, sometimes in hollowed out trees. And bush babies in general, including the Rondo dwarf, bush baby are considered social gregarious primates. A family group is going to look like something between two and seven uh, bush babies that will nest together, um, whether they're in a bird's nest or a hollow. But they will typically split up at night to hunt for food. So um, in the primate behavior realm, that's a little bit different because they are very social, hang out, nest together, but they do hunt separately, which that's uh, not often seen. And depending on the primate, that's not often the case. A lot will forage in groups or hunt in groups, if you will. And so females are going to keep a territory typically with their young, um, while males are, they leave after they reach sexual maturity. So a social group, if you're lucky enough to ever see one, is typically going to be related females and their offspring. Or on the off chance, uh, males that are young and don't really have a territory may establish what's known as a bachelor group. And of course, in order to maintain these bo- these bonds, it's really important that bush babies spend a lot of time grooming not only themselves, but also participating in aloe grooming, which is grooming another uh, another bush baby. And they'll do it before they rest, when they wake up. Um, so it's done throughout the day, and the social grooming is actually performed slightly more. Uh, among males in the group than females. Yeah, you see that all the time with primates. Always yeah. grooming each other. Always, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Like, you're my buddy, right? Let me eat these ticks off you. Oh, yummy. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I just thought it, for this, it was interesting that the males tend to do it more and the females will often reject uh, solicitations from males. Like, I don't, I don't, don't groom me. <laughs> That's pretty, being a man, that's that's a common occurrence against, you know, in any primate species. Uh, yeah, like, mm, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm going to swipe left or right. Yeah, I don't, know. I don't know how the app, I don't know how the apps work. Sorry. Yeah, left. <laughs> that swipe left? Yeah, swipe left. Swipe left. I got I to gotta work yeah. on that. Yeah. Uh, actually, I shouldn't work on that, right? I'm happy. No. Right, so no. I don't need to. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit that part out. But yeah, well, no. I Well, when I'm teaching, I try to stay like hip to like what's exactly. happening so I can yeah. relate. Uh, so it would be more to make it's, a joke than. You keep saying actually. TikTok and my kids had my phone the other day. My 10-year-old works like. You have TikTok? Oh, dad. I was like, oh, God. Oh, I was like, no. So it begins. I'm like, son, it's on there because Angie wants me to try to do TikTok. I, 
I can't even do Instagram half the time. <laughs> I'm too busy. I got other things to worry about. Uh, I know. I think you do a fantastic gr- job on Instagram. Uh, and uh, I could see you and uh, Rourke doing some TikTok dances together. Yeah, maybe. So, maybe a or maybe older. I, you know what? You should probably just put him in charge of creating the TikTok for all creatures. And he'd okay. probably do a better job than <laughs> Way better us. than me. Let my six-year-old do it. But being a single dad <laughs> down here by myself, it's, <sighs> it's been, been, been busy. I don't have time for TikTok. But. But back to the Bush babies. Yes, back to being hip with Bush babies. But we didn't even mention this earlier on the podcast, so shame on us. But one of the reasons that the Bush baby gets its name is because they're very vocal and they sound like a baby crying in the African bush. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't see that. Or well, or people think because of its appearance, because it's just so cute. Like, oh, my goodness, who, who wouldn't want to like – I know. I mean, we don't touch wildlife, but – no. If you know, so it's tempting, but no, yeah, yes, but so their vocalizations are really, really unique and important to their social dynamic, and they have several different calls or repertoire from aggressive calls, contact calls, fear, alarm, social. And what's even more fascinating, Chris, which is helping with some of this reclassification of how many species there are and how many families, uh, is that each species will create unique and different loud calls that have different functions depending on the species. So in one species, the loud calls might help identify a family member or another one might be to help locate uh, the distance of a family member or a rallying call or a predator. So of course they're using DNA to help identify some of these lineages and different species, but these distinct calls are also helping researchers say like, okay, no, for sure. That's like totally different than than this other species. And so, Chris, what's really interesting about the Rondo Dwarf bush baby is that researchers have found that they have their own distinct uh, set of calls that uh, have been coined a double unit rolling call, which is just that much different than uh, other dwarf bush babies. So it's just really important not only for the animals to communicate to one another, but it appears to have several different modalities. And so here's an example of a rondo dwarf bush baby call um, that was contributed by Andrew Perkins. That's interesting, Angie. It's almost like a bird. You know, I because know. they are they are in the canopy, right? So it's not like he's up close with the microphone. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. You hear that chat that chatter. It to me, it sounds like a bird. Yeah, yeah. It's just so fascinating. I I I just had no idea. Now now I want to go back and have a tent in the bush and just see if I can identify some of these calls because it's a little bit like a human crying baby. Although my newest edition, Maddox, he doesn't really cry because he's perfect. Perfect. So <laughs> I can't really relate. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, just really, really, really unique. And um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll put that on our show notes so you can uh, listen again. But of course, along with all these vocalizations, um, as a species of primates, 
Bush babies in gen- general use a ton of visual communication, right? Body posture, um, facial expressions uh, that will help let the other Bush baby know if they're happy or sad or scared. Or uh, So they're just really fun and dynamic to watch, except for they're at nighttime, so that doesn't really help. <laughs> and, of course, the tactile communication, uh, grooming, right? Um, we talked about that. And then they also, for scent communication, they are known to use their urine um, for scent marking. And they'll actually scent mark their path along the trees that they like to take um, so that they can like, as they're bouncing around, right, three to five meters, my goodness, uh, Mm -hmm. they can land on the same branch that they are familiar with. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of times they'll they'll urinate on their hands uh, before... Moving around, it helps their grip, and then once again, leaves behind their bush baby smells. One of the things I'm glad we didn't carry on in evolution (laughs) (laughs) to our uh, behavior. Exactly. Yeah. So, see, we're learning things all the time. So, reproduction, I mean, they don't live long, so... Right. How well, they, they reproduce. Yeah, they they can breed once or twice a year, uh, depending on the species. Um, but in general, bush babies are polygonous breeders, and I couldn't find really specific uh, breeding behavior for the rondo dwarf bush baby, uh, as I think we're still learning a lot about it. And of course, it's pretty secretive, and there's not a lot of them to study. But if we take, for example, the lesser bush baby, which is the one I think I saw in Kruger. After breeding with a male, a female's gestation period is going to be around 120 days, anywhere from 110 to 133. And uh, baby bush babies, <laughs> say that three times, baby bush babies, uh, the infants are going to be born with their eyes barely opened, um, really dependent on mom, uh, especially in the beginning. And so the infant's going to just always be in contact with the mom and like stay in the nest. And after about a week or so, the mom will start to carry the infant in her mouth and she'll set it down while she's feeding at nighttime. But the mother bush baby will continue to feed uh, the baby for anywhere from six weeks to two months. But the the babies do go really fast and um, and they start to grow out of the nest pretty quickly uh, and start following her around during feeding sessions. And for example, in the lesser bush baby, um, the mom is going to nurse her y- the young for about three and a half months to four months. And the baby will, as we've seen, it's pretty typical in primates, it, uh, they'll cling to the mom's fur. And then in general, female bush babies are going to become sexually mature in less than a year, uh, around 240 days. And in the male, it's about 300 days. So, um, that's where a male will go out on a branch out on his own, pardon the pun and, uh, uh, look for other females or bachelor groups to hang out in until he becomes a successful breeding male where female bush babies will end up staying with their moms and continue to forage with them. And in general, uh, and I found, I did find this information about the the Rondo dwarf bush baby, uh, the females will give birth to one offspring, maybe two per year. So, um, and their short lives, they, they luckily do give birth at least once a year, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully they, you know, two to three 
or four before mm-hmm. they go. Because I mean, like I said, the the Rondo dwarf bush baby is critically endangered. We don't have a population number on them, but it because it's rare to see them. They do see them still, so they can't be declared extinct. And again, you have those two population centers really, really spread far apart. So yeah, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Yeah. And luckily, like the lesser bush baby and several several species of bush babies are uh, least concerned. So they're not threatened. And researchers are able to gather a lot of behavioral data from them, which will hopefully be helped and used to support the efforts to conserve the critically endangered Rondo dwarf bush baby. Right. So who's out there fighting for for the uh, Rondo dwarfs and the other endangered species? Well, yeah, I want to give a huge shout out to the Edge of Existence because uh, they, of course, have recognized the Rondo dwarf uh, bush baby as one of the world's most critically endangered primates and that it also represents a really unique phylogenetic uh, branch because this species is different, uh, 20 million years apart, uh, different from a lot of the other bush babies like the lesser bush baby and things like that. Um, And so we'll link it to our show notes, but the edge of existence is always on the lookout for these really unique species. And they have, they support researchers uh, and, help give them fellowships to in, to fund this really critical research to learn more about them to help protect them. And so they can be found at www.edgeofexistence.org. And once again, they are also supported by the Zoological Society of London, um, doing really, really good work. And if you're not already following the Zoological Society of London on social media, I highly recommend you do. You will learn a lot. And they just, their efforts towards conservation are just always very impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, look for Dr. Paula's interview this week. You know, she's the CEO of Wildlife Direct. So we'll talk a little bit more about them. Yeah. And you'll have to check out Wildlife Direct. That's the other organization mm-hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah. Great work. Great work. Good job, Angie. We kick off next week, uh, Plastic Free July with a fan favorite going yes. back to the oceans. I'm excited to cover this species. So get ready, but check out those links. But thank you so much for listening. You know, hopefully you're learning with us because like we talked about in this podcast, we're nerds. We love it. We love learning. We love doing these deep dives and then telling you what we learned. So take care and stay tuned for going to the ocean next week. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.